Hello and welcome to our weekly podcast from Faith Point Church, Auckland, New Zealand. We hope you will encounter God afresh in this week's teaching segment. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to hear more, then you can visit us at www.faithpoint.org.nz. And now for today's message. Uh, So we've been going through a new series and we're looking at the words of Jesus, the first where he has included the word first. And so he gave some spiritual principles out of the word first. And the last two weeks we've been dealing with seek ye first. How does the rest go? Seek ye first the and and. Okay, you've almost got it uh, down pat. But Jesus said, uh, if we put him first and his kingdom first and our desire to live right first, then there is a promise attached to that, and that is that God's going to take care of all the essentials of life over your life. And so last few weeks, we've been looking at prioritizing our focus, being single-eyed for the kingdom of God, seeking God first. Jesus said, if your eye is single focused, then your whole body will be full of light, that we can live our lives completely different when we are single-minded and single-focused. So making that first priority, seeking first, focus first on Jesus and being single-eyed has a massive impact on the way that you live your life. We talked about prioritizing our treasure. He said all these things, what things? The essentials of life, food, clothing, shelter, they will be given to you if you seek first the kingdom of God. And Jesus made some stunning words about our treasure. He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Not where your heart is, there your treasure is. No, where your treasure is indicates where your heart is. And so we can actually have a litmus test on our lives by looking at where our treasure is to actually discover where our true heart is. That's what he was saying. So when we prioritize our treasure and we stop focusing on getting, getting, getting and putting Jesus first, he said, I'll give you all these things. You don't have to chase them. They will chase you. Hello. We spend so much of our time absorbed chasing the things of the world. And Jesus said, just put me first. Prioritize your treasure. Make sure your heart's in the right place and all these things will be added to you. And lastly, last week we looked at the issue of worry. Where Jesus in this same sermon, a few verses prior to this, he said, don't worry about food. Don't worry about drink. Don't worry about clothing. Don't worry about housing. He said, this is what he said. He said, if you're going to worry about, he said, don't worry about tomorrow because today's got enough problems for you to deal with. And we talked last week that worry is wasted time. It doesn't change anything. And we've got to, you know, be anxious for nothing. But with all things, through prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to them. And that prayer and constant up-to-date relationship with Jesus is the antidote for worry. Whenever you start worrying, start praying. And watch your worries disappear, especially if you do it with the salt of thanksgiving. Start praising God for what He's already done for you. Start thanking Him for the victories in your life, and you watch the worry begin to evaporate. So today we're going to look at another first of Jesus, contained in the chapter before, same sermon, where he says, first be reconciled with your brother. Today I want to talk to you about relationships. Now this message may be a challenge to some of you today, 
And I believe that if we're going to be a church that is going to uh, be worth its salt, then we've got to tackle the hard sayings of Jesus. Not everything that Jesus said was easy to embrace. Some of the teachings of Jesus are very, very challenging. And so we've got to tackle those teachings in the pulpit. We've got to tackle those teachings when we come together. And we're going to tackle one of those hard ones today from Matthew 5 verse 23. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, he's talking about us coming to worship. If you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go on your way. First, here's another first, first be reconciled to your brother and then come back and offer your gift. He went on to say, agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer and you'll be thrown into prison. I'm going to bring some light on that last statement of Jesus. So he's saying, first be reconciled to your brother. Today we're going to face the Goliath that happens in many of our lives where, where people have issues against us and we have issues against people. Unless you live in a bubble... This verse relates to every single one of you because you are all connected to other people. We are all in relationship with someone. And some people we are no longer in relationship with is what Jesus was talking about today. And by way of introduction, I want to recap one of the largest drama stories in the Old Testament that bears out how this can all work out when it all turns to custard. And this story is found in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 13. And I'll start with a couple of verses and then I'm going to share what happened in the story and then I'm going to finish on a final verse. It spans uh, six chapters of 2 Samuel, the story. 2 Samuel 13, 37, But Absalom fled and David mourned for his son every day. Verse 39, And King David longed to go to Absalom. Let me bring you the backdrop on this story. Absalom was the golden son. Apparently he had a fine crop of hair. He was extremely handsome. Uh, he was a standout personality. He was one of David's favorite children. David had many children. And Absalom had a sister called Tamar who was very beautiful. And her beauty caught the attention of one of her brothers, not Absalom, a brother called Amnon. And Amnon thought that he was in love with Tamar, but in fact we see that it was nothing else but disguised lust. He was in lust with his sister, and he desired her beauty to the point that he wanted to sleep with her. So he faked being sick, and he said, I want my sister to come and serve me some food. And he pushed everybody else out of the room until there was just Tamar and Amnon together. And then he said, come and sleep with me. And she said, I cannot do such a thing. This is not right in the sight of God. And Amnon took her and he raped her. He forced himself on his own sister and the Bible says immediately after that act, in the very next verse, he then hated his sister Tamar. So you, you understand that lust 
Never wants to give. Lust always wants to take. And lust robbed this beautiful young woman, the daughter of a king, from her position in her family. She was now soiled goods. Her virginity had been taken from her by none other than her very own brother. This was a terrible situation. And you see, the Bible pulls no punches. It tells us the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we see the very ugly spanning over six chapters of this incredible story. And she immediately went running out. She tore up her clothes, which was a, which was a symbol of deep anguish and sorrow. And she poured ashes over her head. And the rest of the family found out what had happened. That her own brother had taken her virginity and robbed her by raping her. And of course, Absalom, the golden son, found out what had taken place. And Absalom was a very smart man. He was a very cunning man. And he bided his time. And for two years, he waited for a moment before he hatched a plot of getting all the king's children together for a party away from the palace. And, uh, and he got Amnon there. They got him drunk. And then he set his uh, assassins upon Amnon and they killed him. He took revenge for the rape of his sister. And so we see in this story already there's aspects of heart that have gotten out of control of unforgiveness which has turned into revenge, which has turned into hatred, which has turned into murder because he didn't first be reconciled with his brother. God had another way, but Absalom never took that way. Amnon never took that way with his own sister. And as a result, we're going to find out today, this is why Jesus said, first, we've got to do this above everything else, because if we don't, our relationships are going to turn to custard. This is an extreme example, but you'll see the, the uh, cascading effects of what takes place when we don't deal with the issues that are in our relationships. So as a result of killing his brother, Absalom knew that he was going to be at odds with his father, King David. So he fled. And he fled for three years. So for three years, King David, who's now lost a son, He's virtually lost a daughter because of the shame that's on her. She'll never come into a public appearance because of the weight of shame that's on her life, because of the sexual sin that was uh, done against her. And now he's separated for three years, both physically and also in his relationship personally with his favorite son, Absalom, for three years. And so this is why we open with these verses in 2 Samuel 13. And David mourned for his son every day. Every day, David longed to be connected back to his son. But there was an issue that was in the way. He committed murder and killed another one of his sons. And David never took the opportunity to build a bridge and try and repair the damage all the scripture says what he, is that he longed to be connected to his son, but he never did anything about it. Isn't that a little bit like us? So often when things get difficult in our relationships, we bury our head in the sand like an ostrich, hoping that somehow it's going to get fixed. But it doesn't. Time doesn't fix relationships that have gone askew. 
Only forgiveness will affect relationships that have gone askew. So King David had a ruthless commander of his army. His name was Joab. And he was a very highly skilled. He would be the equivalent of an elite SAS commander soldier. And he was a ruthless man, but he loved David. And he saw the anguish that was going on in his heart. So he arranged for a set of circumstances to take place where Absalom would be returned back to the palace grounds. And he convinced David to let this happen. And so Absalom was brought back from his isolation, but he was never, and David okayed this, but he was never brought into the same room as his father. So his proximity had changed from being miles away to being on the palace grounds, but they never had a face-to-face because the issue still hadn't been resolved, just like my issues and your issues when we have fallouts with people. And so we go on and see the story that at the end of this In 2 Samuel 18, verse 33, the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O my son, Absalom, my son, Absalom, if only I had died in your place. O Absalom, my son, my son. You see, what happened was, because Absalom had been kept at arm's length from his father, he loved his father. And in many ways, he took revenge on his, for his sister, on behalf of his father. But then it put him at odds with his, his father. And so finally what actually took place is that they got into the same room finally, but they still had no relationship. It was a quick kiss and make up, but they never really made up. And so Absalom felt that even though they were close in proximity, you know what I'm talking about. You can be close in proximity to the ones that you love, but you can be far away in your hearts from those same people. And so what took place was that, and this is what happens, when we don't resolve our issues and do it the way that Jesus asked us to do it, this is what happens. Resentment begins to build. Layers and layers of resentment built up in the heart of Absalom, his son. He was no longer the favored son. He was no longer able to have fellowship with his dad, King David. And as a result, he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hatch a plot of my own. I know I'm handsome. I know I'm good looking. I know I'm a good speaker. I know that I can procure favor with my father's subjects. I'm going to stand at the gate of the palace and everyone that has a problem and that wants to come and see the king resolve his problem, I'm going to give them the answer and I'm also going to sow seeds of discord and disunity against my dad. And so what he did over a period of years as he stood at the gate as people came into the king, he slowly won the hearts of the people and then he set up a revolt against his own father. So it just goes from bad to worse. Sometimes we think we've kissed and made up, but we haven't. They got in the same room, but they never dealt with the issues. They were still outstanding. And so what ended up happening is Absalom revolts. He literally sets up a coup against his own father, gets his own soldiers, and basically goes to war against his dad. But what he didn't realize was that his dad was a skilled warrior, and he trained skilled men, and he could never win against the might of his father David. And so Joab was furious because Joab was a loyal 
soldier and a loyal commander, he couldn't stand, even though he knew David loved Absalom, he couldn't stand the fact that Absalom had been disloyal. So he got together a group of elite soldiers and they went out and assassinated and killed Absalom, dug a hole in the ground, threw a whole lot of rocks on top of him and the news came back, which is our last verse that we read here. The king was deeply moved. He went and isolated himself into his bedchamber and he wept and he said, Oh, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died in your place. Wow. And sad to say, this is the outcome. Many of us have a lot of if-onlys. We, we live with regrets because we had a chance to change things, but we didn't take it. King David had a chance to rectify the issues with his son, but he was too proud. And I can imagine his self-talk going on in his head. No, it shouldn't be me that has to sort this out. It should be my son. He's done this to my daughter. He's, he's, he's killed my other boy. He's done all these things. He should be the one that should come to me. He should get it and he should sort it out. But he never sorted it out. And when his son was taken from him, suddenly he's, pour, he's pouring out his grief and he's saying, I should have died in your place. A father should never have to outlive his son. What a story. Incredibly sad and difficult story that all came as a result of not learning to follow the relational guidelines that God has set out for us in his word. And I'm sure there's some of you here that understand the nature of the story. I'm sure that Many of you here can relate to different parts of the story, perhaps not taking murder on your enemies, but perhaps feeling like at times that there's murder in your heart towards those that you've had hatred towards. I wish he would die or I wish he was dead. And we make inner vows and horrible things come out of our heart when we're not reconciled with God. So relationship with God and with one another, is, that's what gives your life meaning. Right now, you are the sum total of all the relationships that you're connecting to in your life. I want you to cast a mind, your mind, over some of your relational connections today and just allow a, a review of them in your mind as I'm speaking together today. And so Jesus wants us to walk in alignment with him and his kingdom, but he's saying, you can't be in alignment with me if you're out of sorts with your brother or your sister. Saying it's impossible for you to get on the job, on with the job of building my kingdom and serving me as your king if you won't align yourself in your relationships. He, he, was, saying, he was saying, I don't want your worship if you're coming in with a soiled heart because your worship doesn't mean anything to me. Therefore, before you come to worship me, if you remember that you've, as someone's got something against you, leave the altar of worship and go and sort it out and then come back and bring your offering of worship. Notice in this, in this particular verses, there's other verses, the onus is not on somebody who's we've done wrong against, but somebody who's wronged us. Did you get that? And you become aware. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, flipping heck. 
If I was to go and see everybody that had something against me, this would be a full-time job. And that's why I believe that Jesus sneaks a very important word in here. When you're coming to worship and you remember, as you're coming into the place of worship, and you remember that somebody has something against you, you need to do, because that's the Holy Spirit zoning in on your spirit. It's time, James, to get this issue sorted out within your life. Many of us today are trying to build kingdom relationships out of a dysfunctional background. Put my hand up dysfunctional upbringing, dysfunctional family. And I've had to fight and wrestle every step of the way to build kingdom relationships that are aligned with the agenda of the king. And I've had to learn through some very difficult circumstances, like having a wife who won't submit to her husband, as the scripture says. <laughs> And having to bring alignment into her life. <laughs> and all the men said, uh -uh. Oh, hey, got control over these men, Viv. What's the story? But the issue, you see, the thing is, is that many of us who, who are raised in dysfunctionality, we don't have the skills and the know-how how to build healthy relationships. So what happens? We just leave it because we don't know how to do it. And years and years of gutter trash just seeping into your spirit. Oh, I'm fine in every other area of my life, Pastor James, but don't talk about sister so-and-so or my brother or my father or my mother, because that subject's off limits. We're not going to go there. So I believe the church of Jesus Christ has been designed through the redemption and the power of the cross of Jesus for us to get our relationships sorted out. Can I hear an amen this morning? And you know, in this place, we should, we should be developing a culture of honesty, a culture of authenticity, being real about it, not trying to hide it under a bushel, no, but being real, not telling everybody you meet about your relational difficulties. We're not talking about that. But we're talking about the reality is that many of us, when it comes time to sorting things out, we need a healthy dose of fresh courage and encouragement from a brother or a sister to actually go and do what Jesus said in order to make it right and bring our relationships back into line. So Jesus steps in and he boldly declares through the law of first of relationship, first be reconciled to your brother your sister, before you come and bring your worship to me, I want you to, when you remember that someone has something against you, to go and sort it out. We've got interesting ways of dealing with dysfunctionality. And when asked on his uh, deathbed by a priest if he would forgive his enemies, the Spanish general Marla Naves growled, I do not have to forgive my enemies. I've had them all shot. <laughs> That's one way of dealing with your enemies. Praise God. I'm glad you don't have a gun this morning. Awesome. So in the Amplified Bible, let's read this verse again, verse 23 of Matthew 5. Leave your gift at the altar and go. 
Leave your gift at the altar and go. First, make peace with your brother, and then come back and present your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're on the way, traveling with him, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put into prison. So our first steps today, we, we need to go and deal with what we know we need to deal with. So here's three simple reasons, and there could be a lot more, but for the sake of a Sunday morning message today, here's three simple reasons why forgiveness and reconciliation are essential to you. Number one, we all have times when we fall, when we fail to keep our relationships in a completely healthy place. So we need to know how to make it right when it goes wrong. And you know, even some of the most holiest of men, the great apostle Paul, had a fallout with a brother. He had an issue with a brother who had taken on a mission trip with him, but he was a bit of a mummy's boy at that stage. And he said, I want to go home to mum. And so Paul released him. His name was John Mark. He's actually the one that wrote the gospel of Mark. And uh, so Paul let him go. You go back to mummy. I'll carry on doing the work of being a missionary. And, uh, and then Barnabas, who literally means the son of an encourager, who is an encourager by definition, says, let's go on another trip and let's bring John Mark with him. And Paul's going, I ain't bringing that mummy's boy with me. He said, last time we brought him on the trip, he, he took the exit door and he went running home to mummy. This is all paraphrased, of course. He went running home to mummy. And so I'm not having, and the Bible says the contention was so great between them. Barnabas, who believed in giving a second chance. Paul, the apostle, who'd been nearly left for dead many times preaching the gospel, felt that he couldn't carry a weight that wasn't going to carry his weight on the trip. So he said, I'm not having him on my team. And so Barnabas said, fine, fine. <laughs> He said, I'm not coming with you now either. <laughs> so Paul teamed up with Titus. He drops Barnabas. Barnabas teams up with John Mark, and they go their separate ways. So even the greatest of the great of these great men and women of God, they had issues, relational difficulties where things didn't get sorted out at the time. I'm glad to say that at the end of Paul's life, the great apostle says these, these words in the book of 2 Timothy, and bring John Mark with you because he has, uh, he, has he has enough energy and effort to make an impact in our team. And so he come full circle round, Paul had, and recognized the worth that was in. But sometimes, when we don't see it at the time, it can bring dissension and obviously split. So we all have times where we fail to keep our relationships in the right order, and so we need to know how to make it right when it goes wrong. Can you say amen to that this morning? That story is in Acts 15, by the way. And so reconciliation is not easy. We know that because if it was easy, then there'd be a lot more of us reconciling. It's not easy. It's a hard task. In fact, Proverbs puts it like this, chapter 18, verse 19. A brother offended is harder to win than taking a strong city. And contentions are like the bars of a castle. If you've fallen out with somebody, you know what it's like. It's like you're on one side of the bars, they're on the other side of the bars. 
And sadly, when it comes to forgiveness, often when we come to a place of unforgiveness, we are literally behind bars. We become a prisoner of ourself because of our unwillingness to forgive. And that's another message for another day. But if you want to read Matthew 18, you'll find the story of the parable of the unforgiving servant. The servant who was forgiven much, but he wouldn't forgive a person who owed him less. And he was sent to jail and the tormentors tormented him. And this is what takes place in our hearts and lives. When we refuse to give, we come to a place of actually putting ourselves in a prison cell. And I believe this, that Jesus gave explicit instructions to us to make it right, not so much for the other person's benefit, but more for your benefit. Otherwise, you're going to be a prisoner of the poison of unforgiveness. And the tormentors, demon spirits, will give access to your life. It will affect your health, your mental health. It will affect every part of your life. Whew. So, if reconciliation is a harder battle to win than conquering a strong city, it's no wonder we usually put off those confrontations and ultimately forget about them, hoping that they will just vaporize and disappear. But unfortunately, they don't. The second reason is that reconciliation comes before we offer our worship and ministry to the Lord. I don't know any person who's come to Christ that doesn't have a heartfelt longing to worship God. And this is why I believe Jesus made this so clear. He put it in the context of something that we all long to do, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So if you want to come and you want to love me the way that I've intended you to love me, then before you bring that gift of worship to my altar, and you remember that something has, someone has something against you. I want you to leave the place of worship and I want you to go and I want you to get it sorted out. I've had situations, even with my own father. My own father, a miraculous story. I won't talk about his conversion, but a miraculous story of how he came to Christ and I was involved in that. That came out of a time of incredible uh, laser-focused intercession in the Spirit. And he came to Christ the very, the very night I prayed for him and I had an encounter with God in the place of intercession. And the very, that same day, the Holy Spirit told me as I finished that time of being on my face on the floor for two hours uh, praying for my father, he said, tonight your father will give his life to me. And my father came to Christ that night at a Bill Sabritsky meeting and his partner. They both came to Christ. And you know, I had become very separated from my family the black sheep of the family in my younger days. And so I didn't want to bring all that stuff on my family, so I separated from my family. So I really struggled to have a, a healthy relationship with my own father. And we were doing a big tent campaign on one of the marais down, further down the North Island, and I invited him to come. And he came to the big tent meeting that we had, and in the middle of the worship, the Lord said to me, go and, go and tell your father, this is while we're in worship, First, same principles. He didn't say this literally to me. First, be reconciled with your father. But this is what he was doing. He said, first, James, I want you to go to your father right now. And I want you to confess to him that you've been a terrible son to him. And I argued and I reasoned and I argued. About three songs later, I'm still arguing and I'm still reasoning with God. And I'm saying things to myself like, but he should have done this and he should have done that. And I made every excuse as to why I should have to go and build the bridge. And finally, with a big hefty boot from heaven, <laughs> I went 
and I drew alongside my dad about three or four rows. I literally, I walked all the way around the front and then I came all the way down the back and then I came up beside him. And in the middle of worship, I turned to my dad and I said, Dad, I want you to forgive me for being a terrible son. And he just broke down. He just sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. And that step, taking that step, restored my relationship with him fully. And then he began to confess to me how much of a terrible father he had been. And God built an incredible bridge between the two of us. To the day that he died, which wasn't long after that, as we were able to get it sorted out, as I acted upon one of the first laws that Jesus taught us to do and brought my life into spiritual alignment, then God could do the rest of it. Amen this morning. So, Jesus says, agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him. Lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into the prison. This is the same sentence that he's told us to first be reconciled. These are the following words. What does this mean? We don't understand the fullness of this verse until we understand the legal system at the time that Jesus walked the earth. Here's how it worked. If you were the plaintiff, the one that had an agreement with somebody else, then it was your job to go and find the defendant and bring them to the judge. This is how it worked in those days. They didn't have bailiffs like the court system has today. So if you were the one that had been wronged against, you were to go and find the person who wronged you and you were to get them and physically bring them before the judge. And so this is the context that Jesus is saying. This, he's saying, agree with your adversary quickly. So he's come because he's got an agreement against you and he's come to grab you, to take you before the judge. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, when you know that somebody has an issue against you, deal with it there and then. Don't leave it. Agree with him while he's in the way. Before the situation gets worse and other things begin to happen and you find yourself in prison. Can I hear an amen this morning? If we understand what he's meaning. So what he's talking about is the immediacy, the now moment. We've got to do it now. Strike while the iron's hot before the situation unravels and it gets worse and worse. Now look, we can't control another person's choices. We can only go and do what we can do. It may not always be well received. And you've got to do what God has placed upon you, your bit to do in regard to this. We can't always guarantee a favorable outcome. But what we must do is guarantee our obedience and our response when we understand the Holy Spirit has spoken to us and said, when you remember that somebody has something against you, you must go. Make up your mind. Make the first move. Repair that relationship. Lastly this morning, the third reason why we need reconciliation with our brother is because bonding can too easily turn into bondage. Bonding can suit. How many of you have been stabbed in the back in the house of your friends? You know where you've built this relationship and suddenly something takes place in a relationship that you might have been good, that it might have been rosy for many, many years, but suddenly that bonding turns into bondage and the person that you've known for years and years, suddenly you're out of sorts with that person. 
It's such a difficult thing because they know you, you know them. And that makes it all, when you don't really know how somebody thinks or acts, it's a lot easier to go and sort it out. But when you know, but if I say this, I know what they're going to say. They're going to do this, they're going to do that. And you've got it all worked out what their response is going to be because you know them. So your bonding is turned into bondage in that situation. And it means that our emotions and our, and our affections go all skew with because we have that bonding with them. And unfortunately, the result of unforgiveness means lack of intimacy. It means isolation. It means you're separated from that person. This is usually how it work, works out. You refuse to see them anymore. And so if they're walking down the same side of the street and you spot them, you're going you're to change sides and you're going to walk down the other side of the street because you can't cope with that situation because your bonding has turned into bondage in that situation. Someone once said, a true friend is one who walks in when others walk out. A true friend is someone who walks in when others walk out. I love friends like that, don't you? Somebody that will stand by your side. But sometimes we actually need to speak the truth in love with one another. Sometimes when we understand what our friend's going through, we need to come alongside them and say, hey, you can't bury your head in the sand. You've got to deal with this. You've got to reconcile this relationship. It's going to eat away at you and eat away at you. It's going to poison you until that unforgiveness is going to become a massive mountain in your life today. So what is reconciliation? It's altering or removing any problem that is hindering the relationship. Reconciliation is altering or removing any problem that hinders the relationship. It's bringing health it's bringing vitality. It's bringing alignment where both of you are now getting things sorted out and you can move on. You know, I've had the privilege over many years of pastoring where for one reason or another, either sickness, nightmares, um, uh, family uh, blow-ups, have been brought to my attention with a congregation member. And I've backtracked on it, and I've found out the source of the issue, of what happened to that person. And normally in that situation, the person in the congregation has been a victim of foul play. And the hardest ones are the ones that are in your own family, a father or a mother, a brother or a sister are the most difficult ones because that's not the way it should be. And then I found out what makes it even harder when finally all the laundry has been aired, I find out that the person that they are grieved against is no longer alive. They're dead. And the sad thing about it is, is that their death hasn't changed the way that they feel. Just because somebody's died doesn't mean it's going to change the way that you feel things in your own heart and your own life because you still feel those things that took place and happened to you. And so what I've had to do is I've had to pray a proxy prayer with those people as if that person was alive and release all the poison of unforgiveness as they've come to that point that where they've been willing to actually forgive even though that person isn't alive anymore. I just felt to throw this, not in my notes this morning, I felt to throw that in as we go through this morning. So scripturally, both the offending and the offended party should seek out 
reconciliation through a process of forgiving one another and dismissing their differences so that they can once again be united together. I found an article in Psychology Today magazine, and it's, it's, it, it was factors that lead to a friendship ending or cooling off. Some of you might have experienced these 12 common reasons why a relationship that was close once is no longer close now. Number one, one of us moved, moved away. Number two, I felt that my friend betrayed me. Number three, three, we discovered that we had very different views on some of the most important issues in life. Number four, one of us got married. Number five, my friend became involved with or married someone I didn't like. A friend borrowed money from me. I borrowed money from a friend. <laughs> they both have, can have an adverse effect. We took a holiday together. <laughs> Hello. Uh, one of us had a child. Uh, one of us became markedly more successful at work than the other one. Number 11, I got divorced. Number 12, one of us became much richer than the other one. Isn't that interesting? 12 factors that can affect the relationship that once was bonded and strong but is no longer. So as I finish this morning, friends, can I just say this? Forgiveness can be costly. Forgiveness is never easy. It can be extremely painful. And I believe, as we open with the story of King David, that if King David had taken the first be reconciled with your son Absalom immediately, then he could have saved a lot of difference. Going back one step before that, dealing with Amnon in the situation instead of just letting sleeping dogs lie, the outcome of all those years where his family, uh, where the relationships turned to custard and things became very difficult, it could have been another story, but it wasn't. You know, forgiveness requires love and action. And sometimes the things that God asks us to do, they're not easy things to do, but love says I've got to do them. For example, that night when I went to talk to my father, love demanded a response from me, even though I was much younger than my father, I was more the more mature Christian, as he was a new Christian, and so God put the onus on me to take the first step, and in the end, that restored many years that the locust had eaten with my own father. Forgiveness offers a healing medicine. You need to know this today. Some of you are sitting here this morning and you're still struggling. Whenever an image of that person comes to your mind, you feel hatred, resentment, and you have no good feelings about that person whatsoever in your life. I want to tell you today, you need some medicine, and that medicine is forgiveness. Releasing the poison of unforgiveness out of your life. And I believe this, forgiveness is the true outwalking, outworking of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He's made the way, he's paid the price, he's built the bridge, not just for us to get to God, but for us to repair our relationships with one another this morning. I believe that unity is our best weapon against the devil, and I believe a church that's serious about reconciling their relationships is a powerful church in the spirit. You know, the devil looks down on congregations and he's looking at all these, you know, a little bit like a garment. 
that has a little frayed bit of cotton on the side. If you pull it, you can keep pulling and you can destroy the garment. I believe the devil looks down on congregation. He's looking for those little frayed edges on the garments of the congregation. And if he finds them, he just keeps pulling them until the church begins to unravel. Many of us know great stories. There's a story, just a few, when I say great stories, terrible stories. Great in terms of how bad they were. Of a mega church pastor in Seattle only a few years ago who had combined congregation meetings of 15,000 people. But he was an absolute dictator to his staff. And in the end, the resentment between him and his staff blew up. And in the end, they kicked him out as the senior pastor. But because they hadn't dealt with their grievances in the church, a church of 15,000 literally disappeared within three months. That whole church had absolutely vanished. 15,000 people. Because they never followed the protocol of what it meant to forgive. So as we finish the message today, first be reconciled with your brother. Forgiveness can restore the present. It can heal the future. And it can deal with the past this morning. Could I ask us just to stand to our feet as we finish this message today?